Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Indeed. Joining us today, it is The Times' very own Alison Rudd. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action, which includes Sunday's mouth-watering tie as Liverpool head to Stamford Bridge. Both sides will be looking to get back to winning ways after a miserable night in Europe. And that is where we will begin. After an incredible season for English sides in the Champions League last year, two of them kick off their campaigns, including the Champions with defeat. It was then Liverpool and Chelsea that lost, getting off to the worst possible start on Tuesday with defeats to Napoli and Valencia, respectively. Uh, Liverpool lost in Naples for a second season on the spin. There were uncharacteristic defensive errors from Andrew Robertson and more notably Virgil van Dijk, which cost Jurgen Klopp's side. And he wasn't happy with the decision to award Napoli a penalty that led to that 2-0 defeat. Now, that's caused a bit of controversy this week, but it's nothing new. Um, Gregor, are we going to see players play for the penalty all the time now? Is that something we're just going to have to accept and perhaps even applaud as being part of the game now? I personally certainly wouldn't applaud it, but um, I, I think we've been seeing it for a while as well. And there have been... In fairness, there have been far more glaring examples of attempting to win penalties and fouls than, than this incident. You know, where players deliberately throw their legs or body across a defender, often at high speed, to kind of engineer a collision. Um, that's become quite commonplace in the last few years. This was a little bit different because Andy, Andy Robertson stuck a leg out. He didn't need to do it. And when you do that these days, there's always a chance that a player will go over looking for the, for the foul. And he gave it's that old kind of cliche, but he gave the, the referee a decision to make. Um, and I have to admit, when I saw it at full speed, I I kind of thought, albeit from a from a from a TV screen, I thought it was a penalty. And then when you see it slowed down, you saw that the player was starting to go over before there was any contact. The contact was very minimal, um, and clearly it was it was a dive. But the fact that Andrew uh, Andy Robertson stuck his leg out was very foolish in the first place Mm. Um, so it kind of really hasn't got anyone to blame too much but himself Well as you might expect Gregor Jürgen Klopp doesn't quite go with what you're saying he says I'm pretty sure there are different views on this situation but when the player jumps before there is contact then there cannot be a penalty that was the game changer he says it was very decisive he says I could say a lot of things about it but I'm not a bad loser Alison we've spoken about VAR a heck of a lot already on this podcast and I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about it but if Klopp is right where was VAR in all of this? Well, I, I, I think this is a interesting chapter in the evolution of VAR let's not get into whether we like VAR or not but it was there it's there for the Champions League the point is partly to give referees the reassurance that things that are very difficult to spot in real time will be picked up by different camera angles and an extra pair of eyes. And I I would have said if you were, um, you know, rewind five years and you were somebody who really wanted VAR to take off and having to go to a boardroom and address people from the game and explain why it's a good thing, you might well show an incident just like this one where it looks... it's. But really ob- obvious, perhaps from the referee's standpoint, you can you can completely understand why the official standing where he is would award the penalty. 
and that afterwards there would be reruns and managers saying saying stuff saying you know it's, it's not enough we need help was it was a player cheating you know is is it really worth punishing a defender just because as as, as Gregor said he, he sort of partly puts his leg out to make a challenge and if you were if you were a VAR you know backer you would say this is where VAR comes in and, and can see those minute details and you need you really do need to look at the incident three or four times and they're allowed to do that with VAR it doesn't take that much time one small incident and you can you can calculate that there was not contact and the the attacker was looking for it and and had VAR decided to overrule the referee would not feel undermined there wouldn't be uh, a clamour saying oh it's the, the bar's been lowered now the referee would probably be quite relieved because there was no way he could be absolutely sure of what had happened but it's it's an example of how different angles and slowing it down does make it clear and and so having said all that it's absolutely ludicrous that it's not overruled because that is the point of VAR VAR is getting involved in things that the game doesn't need to be meddled with and yet when it could help everybody involved everybody involved including the officials it doesn't do that so I am slightly baffled why in this particular instance we didn't have what would have been a really good example even for people who just don't like VAR of why it can help mm. Alison's right because the, the, we talk about the, the high bar but that's in the Premier League so there's no reason why in, in the Champions League it's not it's not really talking about the same threshold there's no reason why they couldn't have decided to, to, to award that as you know as a dive do you think do you suspect and, and they was, just didn't they just just the person in the in the room think, didn't know I, I think they, I think they do have a pro, kind of do have a problem about about sort of contradicting one another and often they're sending people sending someone over to the the referee over to the screen as though the obvious kind of answer to that but uh, you can't you can't explain why they why they didn't do that it's certainly one that was that would deserve a second look by the referee at least so it's hard to it's hard to fathom and that, that's the thing as well that the fact that the the threshold is different well the premier league has, has come out and said that they're going to have a higher threshold for these than uefa have i'd love to be able to know if that incident had happened in the premier league whether that would be considered a high bar low bar incident mm. or not I, I ironically i suspect they would have they would have overturned yeah you think uh, yeah i think you're probably <laughs> right but well, i think interesting at the time i'm pretty sure the commentary and uh, the commentators were saying that it perhaps it's not clear and obvious and that's why it's not been overturned but if anything was clear and obvious that one looked looked like it surely because as as you say from a particular angle it certainly looked like it was more of a dive than it was a penalty yeah well very often the the phrase clear and obvious is absolutely meaningless yeah. it's a penalty in a champions league tie it it needs looking at and if if far's only going to help with things that are clear and obvious then you don't need it do you because it's obvious <laughs> very right <laughs> very right well was this defeat then gregor for liverpool simply down to those defensive mistakes and are there reasons for Klopp to still be optimistic about their Champions League campaign? Yeah, very much. I mean, the rare mistakes, that's why they sort of they, they were so jarring from, from someone like Andy Robertson and, and Van Dijk for the second goal. And that was really the only thing that separated the teams. The front Liverpool's front three had opportunities, they still looked dangerous, created chances. Liverpool lost all their all three away group games on route to winning the, the Champions League last season. So there's not too much to worry about, and I think the the last time they failed to score a goal as well was, I think it was only once since you know the beginning of March, and that was Barcelona away in the Champions League. So it's, it's very rare they don't find the net in a game as well. So look, they're still it feels like they're not really 
had to leave fourth gear in the Premier League yet, and, and they've still won maximum points. So, if anything, it's a smoke, perhaps a little bit of a reminder they need to be a bit closer to their best in the Champions League. But they they weren't far away. They were. There was just those errors that primarily separated the two teams. Mm. Well, let's take you to Stamford Bridge now. Frank Lampard became the first Chelsea manager to lose his opening Champions League match in charge as they lost 1-0 to Valencia this week. Now, they had the chance to level at the end of the game. Ross Barkley failing to take it, though, from the spot. question is, Alison, should he have been taking it? There's a lot of... uh, well, there was a bit of a, an argument, let's say, on the pitch. It seemed between some of the Chelsea players and Ross Barkley. And afterwards, Frank Lampard has, has come out and said that Ross Barkley was the man to take the penalty. But he was only on the pitch for seven minutes. He was a late substitute. Should he have been taking it? It's bizarre, I think, to to have your designated penalty taker somebody who isn't guaranteed to start every game. Yeah. And Ross Barkley, he, he just isn't that player. He's, he's, he's going to he's going to start. I don't know. I would guess. Overall, thirty-five percent of matches. He's not going. To, he's not going to start every game, and he's. And when he does start, he's. He's very likely to be someone that comes off, as well. So the chances of him being on the pitch when a penalty is awarded are. I'm getting muddled with my maths here, but they're probably around what twenty-six percent, probably. So well, I, I, in a in a sort of a pure analytical sense, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It, but, but the real reason it doesn't make sense is if Ross Barkley really is your designated penalty taker. Presumably in training, he's been absolutely awesome at practising penalties at the end of games out there. And I know he does go out and practise them, but lots of players do. But if you're... Yeah, so you've been practising penalties, you're absolutely superb at them uh, under any circumstances that they decide, you know, little tricks in training to throw at you. Your teammates know your designated penalty taker. They've watched you in training. And if you've been that good... Why do they feel the need to pat you on the back, pat you on the head, whisper in your ear, oh, good luck with the penalty? Because that's what Ross Barkley said was happening. It, it wasn't a row. The, the players were coming up to him Same, to tell him, yes. oh, we wish you well. If you're that good a penalty taker, you, you don't, A, don't need to be told good luck. And you don't see that that often, do you? And B, even if you're uh, semi-good, if people are coming up to you, your teammates coming up to you, and whispering, it's going to put in your head the idea, oh, maybe I need a bit of luck because I'm, I'm really not that good, am I? And so by the time he put the ball on the spot, it was completely obvious he was going to miss. He did not look confident. It's, I would give advice to <laughs> to all all players now, do not go up to your designated penalty taker and speak to him at all to penalty. Mm. A, people are going to misinterpret that as you want to take wanting to take the penalty. And B, I, I just don't think a penalty taker wants to be given words of encouragement it's completely counterproductive and yeah as far as I'm aware Ross Barkley took one penalty pre-season for Chelsea and he scored from it but I mean so what you you need someone with more of an aura I think to take take your penalties certainly someone who does not need to be patted on the back and wished good luck Mm. I mean Gregor I don't know where you stand on it as I mentioned he was only on the pitch for seven minutes barely time to really get into the game do you feel that if you do have a designated penalty taker, they need to be starting? Yeah, I basically agree with everything Alison said there. I'm not sure how often I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think the idea that I think people, I think people are overthinking things a little bit here. You know, fair enough, they're, they're practicing penalties daily, probably, and and Barkley might have come out on top of that. But absolutely, if he's not regularly starting, or if he's not starting that game, then say before the game who who the penalty taker is, and I'm sure it would have probably been Jorginho. So 
And also, absolutely, no matter what the players are saying to Ross Barkley when they're going up up to him in the penalty box, they could they could be saying anything. They could be talking about like what they watched on telly last night. It doesn't matter. Just don't go up and speak to him because that, that adds to the pressure. It makes it seem like there's some kind of ambiguity about it, uh, and that does add add to the pressure. What whatever anyone says, it, it clearly does. So, I absolutely agree. I think. Um, I think people are just overthinking things a little bit here. If, if, if they know who the penalty taker is and he's not playing, then I, you know he shouldn't be. He shouldn't be the penalty taker. He should. He should be known before the before the game, before the game starts. Mm. It is a tough group for Chelsea. They've got Valencia then, as well as Lille and last year's semi-finalist Ajax making up Group H. How damaging will a home defeat be for Chelsea's campaign, Alison? Probably not as damaging as you might think. They, they, Chelsea are still clearly a work in progress. I felt the least they deserved from from the game on Tuesday night was was a draw. They created quite a lot of not a lot, but they created some good chances, and I, I felt they were um, more or less on top of the game. And I feel that I'm going to say this a lot, and I don't know at which point we'll stop saying it's it, that Chelsea are sort of just learning how to cope with with stuff but they've they've got players coming back so the main problem perhaps is one that they won't have again which is that they played a three-man defense which I think was the right thing to do but in that defense was Kurt Zuma who was pretty ineffectual and a few Chelsea fans have said to me it's like they were playing with 10 men he did so little but that was a sort of emergency cover for Rudiger. Rudiger will be back very soon, Kante will be back very soon just having those two really excellent players with good defensive brains and work rate will improve them enormously defensively. And they've got a host of youngsters who will come come in and add add more pace and excitement to the team. So they they are evolving, and I think because the Champions League is so spread out, by the time we get to the latter stages of the group stage, I think we'll see a much much more composed Chelsea with a with a shape we can recognise where Frank Lampard isn't trying to sort of mix and match and patch up some problems. Um, so I don't... I, I, I suspect that's as bad as it's going to get for them in the group stage. The Rugby World Cup 2019 kicks off in Japan this week. The Times will be at every game and The Ruck, our award-winning rugby podcast, will be covering the tournament in its unique style. Presented by World Cup winner and former England captain Lawrence Delalio, we'll be bringing you the latest news from Owen Slott, Stephen Jones and the rest of our writers on the ground as they experience the sights and sounds of the greatest tournament in world rugby. The first of two preview shows is available now. Just search for The Ruck on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Acast and don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. Well, Maurizio Pochettino's side have only two and a half days to fly home from Greece, get some rest and then travel to Leicester for the early Saturday kickoff in the Premier League. Of course, Tottenham drew with Olympiacos in midweek in the Champions League. Greg, do you think the Premier League should be doing more to help English teams in European competitions? I'm kind of reminded of a, a column Matthew Syed wrote last last season about this, basically hammering home the point that the clubs are the Premier League. If they really wanted to change something about the scheduling of these games, then they could probably do it. And the like, likely reason why they aren't is probably because it would cost them money. So actually, I don't really think there's much 
I've, I've much in the way of sympathy for for them in this, and and they're all so wealthy now, <laughs> all these clubs, <laughs> that they should have big enough squads to deal with it. And if they don't, then it's largely because of poor planning and poor sort of decision making and and, and deal ends in the transfer market. Of course, it's a short turnaround, and it, it is a disadvantage, but. I don't have much in the way of sympathy for them, I'm afraid. You could make the argument that the way we schedule games in this country is to the benefit of our top clubs because both Liverpool and Spurs reached the final of the Champions League last season, having overcome difficult routes to the final. And how do you know learn how to overcome difficult routes to the final by having a packed schedule at home? It's If you make it too rarefied an atmosphere when it comes to the big games... Um, it was shown, Barcelona proved it, Ajax showed it. When it comes to the big games, they sort of looked quite rattled and like it all come too quickly for them. And oh, how are they going to cope? Or it's just bread and butter to a Premier League team because it's mm. just relentless, relentless, relentless. And because there were two English teams in the Champions League final, I think all arguments that it's too tough for them are just spurious now. Well, Spurs would have been looking to build on an impressive 4-0 win over Crystal Palace last Saturday. They let, though, a two-goal lead slip against Olympiacos, which resulted in that two-all draw. Gregor, will Spursy Tottenham be up against it when they take on Leicester then on Saturday? Um, well, it'll be a tough a tough game for them, definitely. Um, Leicester, Leicester are a team now who will dominate a lot, a lot of possession, and obviously Tottenham like to do that as well so that would be interesting but they're, they've Leicester have been a bit one-dimensional in attack so far in terms of sort of trying to set Jamie Vardy loose um on the current attack so be interesting to see how Spurs set up to kind of try and combat that but um I think it just it, from watching that that game the other night against Olympiacos they do look very kind of sloppy and slack Spurs I've rarely seen them sort of not pass pass so many balls just straight out of play. Um, and I know like, there's, there's been there was a lot of kind of talk around the around the transfer window. And Pochettino said that the, the squad was the most unsettled he'd ever seen. That doesn't just disappear because the transfer transfer window is shut. And they're definitely so they're they're not firing on all cylinders. They looked like they'd kind of clicked into gear against Palace with the help of some very dodgy looking defending. You must say. But um, they're definitely a long way from from firing all cylinders yet, and they need to they need to do it sooner. They'll be they'll they'll, they'll start to be a gap gap opening up between them and, and and the rest of the teams firing aiming for Europe. Well, I know Maurizio Pochettino after that result in Greece sort of spoke about the lack of aggression within the Tottenham side. He's also hinted that he may may need to sort of make training psychologically harder in an effort to sort of snap this underperforming team out of their slump. Is that something you you think they need to be working on then, Gregor? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, I think you, you can see it. You can see that they're not... I don't know, they just doesn't seem to be uh, as harmonious and, and sort of enlivened and invigorated a team as Tottenham can be at their... At their what, what we've kind of come to expect Tottenham to be like. Um, and it, it doesn't surprise me to hear Pochettino saying that, really. Um, I think it does seem to it does seem to be more like a kind of psychological or a or a, um, a men- mentality issue within the group rather than anything to do with with the talent they have at their disposal. It's largely the same team they've had, the same group of players that they've had for a number of years, and they've even added to it. So they know that the players are are capable of a lot more. Uh, 
and Pochettino must has not only seen these games, he must see see what they're doing in the training ground as well. And and he's obviously not not happy with with what he's seeing. He thinks that some people are perhaps taking their foot off the gas. And and as I said, some are slightly unsettled by the fact that they they don't really know what their what the future holds for them, whether it be at that club or elsewhere. And and that's that's seems to be slightly debilitating for them at the moment. Harry Harry Kane said after the game that he he felt that Pochettino was right to, to to be critical and that they needed to as a team grow up that they're not youngsters anymore they've been through a lot of um experiences and they really ought to be able to be psychologically tougher and I it's just a thought but Pochettino's been there so long now in an avuncular role that I wonder if he has because he's nurtured all these players, is it easy for him to switch to being the the tougher, hard-bitten manager who who really instills in them the importance of those psychological traits he wants to see? I mean, it's 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 a bit like if you if you're a parent and you bring up your children in a certain a certain way. Um, helicopter parroting, let's call it that, and you know you won't let them go to the park on their own because they might get kidnapped or they might fall off the slide. And then just one day you wake up and you think, oh for goodness sake, you can cross the road, can't you? Go on, mm. go on. They're they're all going to go a bit wobbly and they're going to be confused by the change in attitude of the parent, and they're not going to be able to function as well as the kids who were brought up in a slightly less precious way and I just I just I just wonder if maybe there's a there's a sort of bumper in the road there for Pochettino that he he might recognize the team need another phase of psychological strength and I'm only saying that word because he did uh, but is he is he capable having been the one that they felt was nurturing to do that I mean I think I was right with the Agreeing with you for the full podcast, Alison. It's, it's arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, I think I understand where you're coming from there, but I think um, look, it's only it was only last season that he was drawing sort of levels of performance and sort of grit and determination out of this in this same team and getting them to the Champions League final. It was only just last season that that was happening. So I, I think I personally think it is it it, it could partially be down to there's four or five players in that team that probably won't be there next year. Um, and possibly one or two might be sold in January. Um, I think I think that can have an effect. You know, it's not it's not really a kind of... That's not a unifying sort of idea to... But that's, fo- that's modern that, or, football, or Gregor. Gregor, that's modern football. You can't only play well because you think you're going to be have your best friend with you for the next six years. I don't think it's about the best friend necessarily. I think it's it's... You know, some of these guys are are nearing thirty or have bridged thirty, and uh, they're uncertain about about the future. They're perhaps not even certain about their place in the team now. Um, and or, or someone like Ericsson wants to get a, the biggest move of his of his career. That what's like one last chance to get it. I just think all these things are little little things that might add up and might might sort of disrupt the the, the balance in in that change room after after the sort of disappointment of last summer as well after. After losing in the Champions League final, and you know, thinking, are we going to be here much longer? Are we are we even going to get to that point again? Have we missed the sort of boat with this this project and to win some silverware? I think all of that, all these things, just could be just small doubts in the back of their mind that adds up to 
a few percentage drop in their performance and that's all it needs. So two defeats and a draw for the English sides in the Champions League so far, but one team did manage to pick up three points and that was Manchester City who went to Ukraine and beat Shakhtar Donetsk quite convincingly 3-0. But you do have to wonder how Pep Guardiola could do with a transfer window right now or... Does he? We know what a miracle maker he can be at times. Um, He knew it would be difficult to maintain a title challenge if one of his centre-backs suffered an injury. But now he has lost two. That's after John Stones joined Imeric Laporte in the treatment room. And it was Fernandinho who was asked to play as a centre-back in Ukraine on Wednesday, partnering Nicholas Otamendi. And if he needs other cover, there is the 18-year-old Eric Garcia and 17-year-old Taylor Harwood-Bellis who are ready, if needed, to step up. But Fernandinho, moving into a bat four, Alison, he, he's actually spoken about how he's actually been doing that in training so far this season. It's a wise move. He's somebody that you expect could actually do quite well in that position. Yeah, and when he, when he arrived in Lancashire, that was, that was what he was fated for, was the ability to be adaptable and um, to play play in the back line I mean when he arrived and started playing it actually confused a lot of people what uh, formation City were playing because you'd look at him and think oh he's he's definitely he's definitely playing you know base of a diamond there oh no actually he's playing where is he now and he was very very good at at, um, he's so good at that moving if if you just sort of spend half an hour just watching Fernandinho the way he shifts in and out moves upfield then goes back into into the defence and when he does that it really does free up uh, the sort of attack minded rest of the team to 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 just free themselves to go up upfield is i think he's a steadying force in the team and uh, much has been made of how city are perhaps missing vincent company not not in in the sense that he was there for every match but he 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 had that sort of mature outlook and was good in the dressing room and when he did play he he made everyone you know just concentrate that bit more and a bit more fight and so on I think Fernandinho gives what he does he gives the people around him that sort of reassurance that if they do attack they've got someone with great uh, vision and ability to read the game covering them so yeah he's he's going to be as excellent centre-back as he is midfielder and there are, I think, probably some people who've watched a lot of City who would say they'd prefer him there to Stones anyway. Mm. Well, Gregor, I mean, if anyone is going to be comfortable on the ball, slotting into that back four as such, it would be someone like Fernandinho. Yeah, I think I think that was probably the perfect game for Fernandinho to return and make his first start in, in quite quite some time and sort of bed himself in. There wasn't that much defending to do. Uh, he had the opportunity to sort of Start a few attacks. Um, and I, I actually, this might sound harsh, but I think losing stones could actually be a bit of a blessing in disguise. And what I mean by that is, it means that Pep Guardiola has no choice but to but to put him in now, to put Fernandinho in. He might have done anyway, but he has no choice. You know, there was a really interesting segment on uh, Monday Night Football and Sky Sports. They kind of analysed the the track record of Stones, Otamendi pairing in defence and compared that with their partnerships with Company and Laporte those, in the, those two players partnerships with Company and Laporte and just about every defensive metric Stones and Otamendi together were, were the worst mm. goals conceded per game almost doubled clean sheets were down between about 10 and 25% and the win percentage was down to 68% and it was 91% with Company and Laporte so 
I agree. I think that Fernandinho adds some of the leadership qualities and, and the, the kind of presence that I talked about that was lacking on Monday's pod that company brought. Not not to the same same degree, but it, it does. Fernandinho is, is a leader and a kind of steadying hand, as, as, as Alison said. Or and Laporte. Laporte does that in a different way. He's just steadfast, reliable, composed, consistent. I don't. I don't mean it to sound harsh. I think Stones is Stones is obviously a talented player, but the two, the two of those, him and Otamendi together, has not been a successful pairing. And having Guardiola having his hand forced now, having to make that change and, and introduce Fernandinho now is no bad thing. That being said, I remember we also spoke previously on on the podcast about Manchester City's problems defending set pieces, for example, and Fernandinho is what is five foot nine. So height has been an issue for, for Manchester City of late and that might be the, a big concern. It certainly could be. I mean, we saw Norwich taking advantage of that and a few other teams have already. Um, that If there's one weakness in, in Manchester City's team, that would that would probably be up there. But I mean, I think we, we've said this for probably a, a couple of years and, and Guardiola will know it. He'll, he'll be working on it. He'll do as much work as he can to to try and sort of uh, safeguard against conceding from set pieces. He'll, and he'll continue to try and outscore teams. So even if they do let in a goal or two goals from set pieces, they'll go out and try and score three or four. Well, Chelsea welcome Liverpool to Stamford Bridge in the final fixture of this weekend's Premier League action. Chelsea have been a mixed bag this year with plenty of excitement coming from their youngsters. But it looks like at the time of recording this podcast that they could be without one of their stars of this season so far. That is Mason Mount after he limped off very early on in that defeat to Valencia on Wednesday night. He has been quite influential for Chelsea so far this season. So how big a blow is that for Frank Lampard, Alison? Well, first of all, I, I, I suspect he might he might pull through. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> just, I was in the mix zone after Chelsea's Chelsea's game against Valencia, and uh, he wasn't limping, and he did say he was hopeful of being okay. okay. So I, I, I think. <laughs> well, anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to stick my neck out because oh, that would be terrible. But anyway, he it might be. But he is. He is. The question really is how important he is. Uh, what I like most about him is that. There's been a, a lot of pressure on him because so much has been spoken about his relationship with Frank Lampard. It's as though we've replaced one set of teachers' pets at Chelsea, which was uh, Sarri and Jorginho, and now we've got Frank Lampard and Mason Mount because he had him. He had him at Derby, and he's the golden boy. And uh, you know they both write theses about each other, whatever they do. But it, with all that, <laughs> with all that, it would have been easy for him to feel for Mount to just feel it was all. I don't know, all a bit too much. But he's I've actually watched a lot of Chelsea this season and he has he has developed in front of my eyes. He's got grow he's growing in confidence almost minute by minute. Uh he's he, he's just almost the complete midfielder really. He can switch around positions. He links up well. He's uh selfish when he wants to be, unselfish when he needs to be. Good reading of the game, good athleticism. He's just just a really good player, and I'm, I'm I think I'm just most impressed that he is he's he's developing so so rapidly and and with such ease. So if if he was not to make it, I think I think that would be a blow to to, to just the morale of the team as well. Mm. Chelsea then coming into this game off that defeat to Valencia, how will they overcome? This Liverpool machine, if you like, that Jurgen Klopp is is producing week in, week out, Gregor. 
I think they've got to go for it, really. I th- you know, they can't keep a clean sheet against far poorer sides than Liverpool. Uh, but they've got they've they've got players who are a threat and and flashes. They've been really really exciting to watch going forward. Um, so yeah, I think I think they have to they, they really have to try and take the game to Liverpool. Uh, I think the only th- the only thing there's obviously been a lot to for Chelsea supporters to to cheer about this this season so far. Um, and the only thing apart from apart from their frailty in defence is I just don't think they're you know they're not really performing. For anything like ninety minutes, they seem to be have really strong spells, um, strong spells in games. And if they don't take advantage of those spells, then um, they they often concede. Uh, and it, the, the thing about that is, it was it was quite similar at Derby last season. Lampard's team were the same. They they really controlled a game in the way that top, the top sides more often do uh, than not. Um, and Derby were really exciting to watch going forward as well, and and they also had the sort of same defensive frailties, uh, sort of lack of protection in midfield and that kind of thing. So I think it's early days uh, under Lampard, and and as Alison said, they've got players to welcome back still from injury. Kante clearly will be vital to when he comes back. Um, Hudson Odoi lost his cheek, so there's there's a lot to be pleased about. But I think I think there. This this is still the evolution phase of of Lampard's Chelsea team. They're not like I say. I don't think they're really kind of controlling controlling games in the way that they're, they're going to have to if they want to if they want to to try and get into that top four. And a word on Liverpool, of of course, Alison, the visitors to Stamford Bridge. It's just one clean sheet that they've had all season so far. Gregor alluded to the way they're playing a little bit earlier on. They they yet to reach top level, but yet still. Producing win after win, really. Yeah, I was. I was going to say. Um, I think Chelsea will have some buoyancy, knowing how well they played against Liverpool in the Super Cup. They, they were the better team in the Super Cup, actually. And You're right, yeah. Um, but equally, I don't think we'll see Liverpool play that badly again this season. So it's it's strange. It's it's early in the season, but I think both teams will feel they've got quite a lot to prove. So Lampard will have to prove that he can bring in the players that have been missing and then it will be a well-oiled machine and that they still have that sort of Chelsea Chelsea thing where they've, they're traditionally always given Liverpool tricky games. Um, and Liverpool will, be, will know, of course, they'll know that they were lucky to win the Super Cup and they'll also be aware that they, they have there are these gradations of improvement that they're going to have to make and it's how you how you do that through the season so Gregor's right they're quite interesting to watch Liverpool because they, they, they do they do seem to decide when a game is won and then stop playing or they, they, they work in spasms and then decide we'll have a rest and then spasm again so that sounded a bit like I was describing a sex act didn't it but anyway <laughs> um, uh, didn't mean to but it's but yeah I, I think I suspect this will be one of those games where we see both sides going for it uh, almost for the full 90 minutes and it will be I don't know I'm going to say it's going to be the, the th- one of the thrilling games of the weekend certainly maybe of the month there you go I'm not going to say the season <laughs> One to look out for, one to enjoy as well. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Alison Rudd for joining us. 
Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we'll be back on Monday looking back on all of the weekend's action, including Liverpool's trip to Stamford Bridge. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.